DW, Living Planet. Hey listeners, happy December. At this point in the year, as we edge closer to the close of 2023, it feels like a fitting time to reflect on where we're at. There's good news and there's bad news. This year was the warmest year in recorded history. Antarctic sea ice reached an all-time low, while sea level rise reached an all-time high. And once more, world leaders came together at the big climate conference, COP28, to tackle climate change as a global community. And the results were mixed. It truly wasn't all bad, though. At the Global Climate Conference, world leaders finally actually agreed to transition away from fossil fuels and to triple renewable energy by 2030. Renewable energy technology also continued to get much better and cheaper this year. I think we have actually made progress where I think a lot of people kind of feel that we've made no progress at all despite tackling these issues for decades now. That's Dr Hannah Ritchie who I recently called up to talk to about her work. She's a senior researcher at Oxford University and the deputy editor of the online publication Our World in Data. She says if you step back to look at the metrics, some promising trends do emerge. So I think if you go back a decade, so around the time when we were agreeing on the the Paris Agreement where we we set uh, targets to limit warming to well below two degrees, many of the alternative technologies we had to fossil fuels were just very expensive, right? So solar and wind were the most expensive energy technologies we had. So it was very hard to see then, even for rich countries to deploy them, but especially for middle and low income countries to, to move away from fossil fuels and move to these renewable technologies. What we've seen over the last decade is that the cost of these technologies have plummeted and they're now the cheapest. I mean, it would have been great if a decade ago we could have got started much sooner, but we're now at the stage where these low-carbon technologies are now competitive with or cheaper than fossil fuels. And what that means is that the world could start to deploy them very, very quickly. And you can even see it reflected in in the kind of pathways that we're heading to in terms of temperature. So we're currently on a path for two and a half to three degrees warming by the end of the century. Now, that is extremely bad, and we need to bring that down a lot. But if you look at the trajectory we were on a decade ago, we were on track for three and a half to four degrees. So we actually, over the last decade, just by scaling up policies, partly driven by these massive shifts in technologies, have taken a degree off our expected pathway. Now, we need to bring that down further, but if we can... If we can shift from three and a half degrees to two and a half degrees, then to me, there's no reason why we can't bring that two and a half degrees down further. That's where Hannah is at now, after digging into the data. But not that long ago, she wasn't actually all that hopeful for humanity. So my background was purely environmental science. And I think I went through a period of actually feeling like quite despondent and very, very gloomy about the state of the world. Um, Quite, I think my my position there was quite valid. I was only looking at these like really negative environmental trends, which are all going in the, the wrong direction. And I think I ended up in quite a dark place because I I took these environmental trends and I extrapolated that to just assume that all of the human metrics were also getting worse. And then I discovered a man called Hans Rosling, and he would do these really famous TED talks where. 
he would zoom out away from like the news reports that we see and, and step back and say, let's look at the data on what's happening. And that really flipped my perspective upside down because many of the trends that I just assumed were getting worse were actually significantly better than any time in human history. So child mortality was much lower than ever before. More children were going to school, getting vaccinated. Like We've made amazing human progress over the last few centuries, which I just hadn't recognised before. That then got me thinking, what does the world look like on environmental metrics if we, we stop looking at, at headlines, which give us very small snapshots of the picture, and step back to look at the big picture through the lens of data? Just to be clear, we're not moving nearly fast enough on addressing climate change, says Hannah. But zooming out to take stock of overall progress helps us understand what is possible. The technologies we need are there. And and there are examples across the world where we're seeing that they are being deployed very, very quickly. You can take China over the last year as an example, where China this year has probably deployed enough solar and wind to power the UK or France. And that's just one year of deployment. So these are technologies that we can actually build out very, very quickly. So I think a lot of the, the base is there for us to do it. We just need a little bit of a shove in the political will to really get going. And now that world leaders have wrapped up their conference, it is indeed time for governments and the rest of us to get on with it. So today, we're going to hear how a few European countries are getting on with the renewable energy rollout. France, Germany and the Netherlands. This is Living Planet. I'm Charlie Shield. First to France, where solar power is hitting the roof. John Lawrenson can explain. I'll pull you up. Just careful, it's slippery again. We're at a warehouse on the outskirts of a town in the centre of France called Illier Combray, a town, by the way, made famous by the writer Marcel Proust, who centred his great river of a novel in search of lost time in this town, where he spent much of his childhood. But are we here to talk about Proust? Certainly not. We're here to talk about France's renewable energy catch-up with the Germans' master plan, the secret of which lies here in this brand new warehouse, or rather, on top of it. Wow. It's quite impressive, isn't it? It is. We've just climbed up onto the roof of an enormous warehouse. I'm with um, Nicholas Jordan, who is development director of Mount Park, a very big uh, logistics company. Uh, Nicholas, tell us what, what we can see here. We're on a 36,000 square metre warehouse roof. The warehouse is split into three cells, 12,000 square metres each. And on two of the cells, we have a solar panel PV coverage. So what you're seeing is uh, all of the clusters on these two cells of the solar panels. It's been raining quite hard this morning. The the sun's sort of like peeking out from behind the clouds, but it's hardly optimum solar panel weather. Uh, How productive are these panels of yours? They produce 1,600 megawatts per year, obviously on a peak and trough basis, so day and night is different and the seasons are different, uh, which equates to approximately the electricity usage of 750 people for the year in in their private homes. So it's, it's quite a phenomenal uh, amount of electricity which is produced. And what happens to that electricity? How is it uh, consumed or how will it be consumed by your future clients? Of the 1,600 megawatts, about 70% is to be, to be sold back to the national grid. 
so that's just over a thousand megawatts and we're retaining 480 megawatts for the future tenant. At the moment, solar represents a much lower percentage of the energy production mix in France than in neighbouring countries. Last year, it was just over 4% compared to around 10% in Germany and Italy. And France has fallen short of its target development for solar energy. It was supposed to generate 19 gigawatts at the end of 2022, but in the end produced just 15.8. The plan is to more than double that by 2028. By then, France aims to be producing 35 gigawatts of solar power each year. Sticking solar panels on roofs is, of course, nothing new, and utilising wonderfully big roofs in more or less industrial sites seems like the obvious choice. But the fact is, not much of this potential is being capitalised on. If it were, that would be a game-changer. As Diana Dizian, the director of Athelog, the French Association of Warehouse and Factory Builders, points out. The potential is huge because they have uh, 80 million square meters of warehouses in France now. From the 80 million square meters, less than 10%, probably less than 7% actually. We are not very sure because we don't have a real uh, database on on that. But uh, France needs energy, Europe needs energy, so uh, we we have... uh, work to to be done and and we can do it. So for the moment, the the global commitment is 5 million square meters of solar panels in the next five years, which uh, represents the equivalent uh, in terms of power, the equivalent of a nuclear uh, reactor. And it also represents the equivalent of the consumption of uh, more than half a million people. This rapid development of solar on warehouses is being pushed by government regulation. But, says Diana Dizian, the warehouse builders and owners are going further. On the new buildings, we have a regulation which requires from us to cover 30% of the roof. And our practitioners took the commitment, the, the voluntary commitment to cover 50%. Why are warehouses, warehouse roofs, why are are they especially suitable for solar power production? I believe they are suitable because uh, they are so big, because uh, the warehouses and the factories are the the biggest buildings we have. So uh, in this uh, world where the the scarcity of land uh, is uh, really important, we need to use land twice. Electricity in France is already pretty low carbon. Three quarters of it comes from nuclear, which is almost carbon free. But fossil fuels still account for almost half of the country's overall energy mix, with the rise of renewables like solar, which are now cheaper than those fossil fuel sources. France is aiming to reach climate neutrality by 2050, although there are still a few kinks to be ironed out to ensure the solar produced here is truly emissions-free, says Diana Dizion. One major problem is that uh, the the factories producing the, the solar cells are not located in France, are not located in Europe. They come from very far. The solar cells come from uh, China, 
and we are really very eager to to be able to to buy locally ourselves because this will improve our uh, CO2 emissions of the solar panels. What about the energy used to produce the cells? Actually, when um, the solar cells come from from very far, from countries where the um, the procedures and the regulations are not the same, we don't really have data about the the carbon footprint of uh, every element. Back at that giant new warehouse at Ilier-Combray, they'll soon be charging up electric forklift trucks with the solar power produced here. And they're already feeding the grid with low-carbon electricity. Electricity demand in France, as in the rest of the world, is rising fast. Giant roofs across France are one of the places that the extra electricity is going to come from. Proust is long gone, and in this town of In Search of Lost Time, there's no time to lose. John Lawrenson, DW, Ilier Combray, France. Germany may have more renewables than France, but that doesn't mean its emissions are lower. And that's mainly because, as John mentioned, France uses a huge amount of low-carbon nuclear power, which Germany phased out completely this year. And to fill the gap left by nuclear energy, Germany has continued burning brown coal, which is the dirtiest energy source. Still, though, the country has big ambitions for a green energy transition, with plans to reach 80% renewables by 2030. And a big part of that will be wind power. But as Natalie Carney reports, getting it up and running is no summer breeze. This is the sound of patience. They need a lot of it up here, high up on the hill in the middle of the southern German state of Baden-Württemberg, where engineers have for years been trying to harness the region's wind power. What they've got here so far is nothing much to look at, just a large circular cement base. But Thomas Schuwald from the Freiburg Green Energy Group tells me that once complete, the towering wind turbine that will stand here will provide electricity to some 4,000 people annually. About 100 feet away is one of their older, completed wind turbines. How many people does yeah. this support? For more than 1,000 people. And the tower is 100 metres, and the blades are 35 metres. 35 metres. Yeah. The new one is like 160 metres, and blades are like 60. Wow! He tells me that the pouring rain and wind up here are perfect conditions for wind energy production. Yep. Excellent weather. Despite the Freiburg Green Energy Group operating over 100 publicly funded renewable energy projects across the country, breaking ground on their latest one is particularly exciting. Back in the dry warmth of his office, he tells me why. From the initial idea for this kind of project, from the location to approval, it usually takes between three and five years, sometimes even longer. We started thinking about it back in 2015, 2016, and only had approval a year and a half ago. And now we have to wait another two years until the construction is finished. Thomas blames German bureaucracy for this project taking a daunting 10 years from start to finish. And unless a lot changes, Thomas doesn't see Germany meeting its target of 115 gigawatts of onshore wind energy production by 2030. That would be a doubling of the installed capacity compared to what we have now. 
That would be twice as much as the country is currently producing, says Dr. Leonard Burtschir, a climate and energy policy advisor at the Munich Environmental Institute. He says trying to get renewable energy projects up and running in Germany is far, far more difficult than most people realize. Lots and lots of regulation has been added or has been made more complicated. We have federal level, we have state level, we have regional level, we have a city level. And on each of these levels, there are obstructions to wind energy. From delays in federal permissions to excessive state regulations, many of the hurdles appear to be driven by outdated conservative views, he says, particularly in the south of the country. Wind energy has seen limited support or even, uh, I would say, uh, open obstruction by uh, the population in the past, especially in the southern states of Germany. It is felt as not fitting into the wonderful, lovely landscape. People are also skeptical whether there is enough wind uh, in the south to actually make this worthwhile. There is a point that could be made there. So far, the vast majority of wind turbines have been built in northern Germany, where wind conditions are much more favorable. However, there are challenges trying to share that energy, forcing southern German states, who don't produce enough by other means, to purchase energy abroad. While some winds of change have been blowing through Berlin since the recent Green Party entered the federal government, both Thomas and Leonard agree that there is a vast difference in the way each federal state supports the production of wind energy. Thomas says the Freiburg Green Energy Group have faced far more challenges building wind turbines in the south of the country than in the north. Leonard blames excessive regulations. There was really political pressure to block wind energy, especially in Bavaria, where a law, for example, has been put in place called the so-called 10-H regulation, meaning that the distance between a wind uh, farm and the nearest house has to be 10 times the height of the windmill, so to say. That, that leaves, I think, less than 1% of the total area in Bavaria um, for, for wind power, and that's just not enough. The good news? EU and federal law trumps state laws in Germany. For example, they define certain areas where wind energy can, by default, be built. So it's not that you have to apply for a wind turbine there, but it's being assumed that in these places wind energy can be built. And then another very important law specifies how much area has to be reserved for wind energy in the next years. And if the states do not define where these areas are, then any state legislation on minimum distances gets out of effect. Even German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who has set an ambitious target of building five new wind turbines a day, has criticized the slow rollout of wind power in the south of the country, calling it depressing. And with only 2.9 gigawatts of installed wind energy capacity developed this year, it's clear much more active production is needed to reach 115 gigawatts by 2030. Yet even more sobering are Leonard's final words as we wrapped up our interview in Munich. It's very important to bear in mind that these goals, under the, the big umbrella of having 80% renewable energy until 2030, this only applies for the electricity sector. And the electricity sector is about a quarter of energy that we use. Right? There is also heating, there is transport, and these other sectors are by far not as far in using renewable energy. Therefore, even if Germany meets its wind energy targets, there's still a long, long way to go. Natalie Carney, DW, in Freiburg and Munich.
the world's largest source of untapped energy. What comes to mind? Remaining oil and gas reserves in some pristine rainforest, perhaps? Or clean wind and solar? In fact, it's the world's oceans. Huge amounts of energy are stored in ocean waves, tides and surface heat. And then there's this thing called salt gradient energy. This is all part of what we're calling blue energy, something the Netherlands is all too ready to get behind. David Kattenberg with this story. I'm sitting in a tour bus heading north along the long dike connecting the provinces of Holland and Friesland, the Afslaut dike, it's called, to the northwest, the Vadensee, a branch of the salty North Sea, to the southeast, the freshwater Iselmere. Our guide points out a large array of wind turbines, a common sight here in the Netherlands. There's 90 turbines here. Each turbine is 4.3 megawatts. Wind Park Friesland is the world's largest wind park in the middle of a lake. It generates enough electricity to power a half million Dutch households. So in front of us, I can already see the Redstead plant, and it's a blue metal building. Straight ahead, our guide points to a more unusual, less visible source of clean electricity. In the middle of the Afslaut dike, fresh and salt water are pumped through a stack of plastic membranes. Salt gradient energy, it's called. Welcome at Redstack at our pilot facility. Red Stack is the first operating facility of this sort in the world. RED stands for Reverse Electrodialysis. Michael van Ostrom tells us how it works. It's salinity gradient, so it takes the difference between salt water and fresh water. If you put membranes in between that are ion selective, you can actually force the positive and the negatively charged ions to go only in one direction while the water still mixes. You can build a power source like that. You generate electricity. Redstack's pilot plant generates one kilowatt of electricity. Not much, but scaling up will be easy. Having proved it works, the next step will be to build larger membrane stacks. A two megawatt demonstration facility could be up and running in a couple of years, enough to power about 10,000 homes. Reverse electrodialysis is probably the most unusual way to tap Earth's largest source of clean energy, its oceans. By 2050, ocean waves, tides, coastal currents, surface heat and salt could supply 10% of Europe's electricity needs, experts say, cutting greenhouse gas emissions by 234 million tons. Global estimates are similar. The section Industrial Revolution, scaling up wave and tidal manufacturing, will start in an eye studio after the keynote. In late October, hundreds of developers gathered in The Hague to show off their devices. Unlike wind and solar, ocean energy technologies have yet to be narrowed down to the very best. There's lots of variety. Yes, so I'm Alejandro Marquez, and I'm the CEO of Magallanes Renovables. We are a tidal energy company. And this is your device? This is, this is like a boat with a tidal turbine beneath it? Yes, the current moves the rotors. The rating capacity is 1.5 megawatts. This is enough energy to power around 1,500 homes. The idea is to install many of them to create a farm of tidal energy devices. 
I check out more ocean energy devices. Hello, my name is Eunice Silva, and I'm a technical project manager at Core Power Ocean. How does this thing work? So the device is a technology that it's called a point absorber. It's stuck to the seafloor, and then it moves up and down as the wave passes through the converter. It will transform this up and down motion into rotational motion that it then produces electricity. There's all sorts of ways to harvest ocean energy, and that energy is begging to be harvested, unlike winds, which come and go, and the sun that goes down every night, the ocean is always in motion. It also has an energy density 800 times greater than wind. Wave tidal energy costs more than wind and solar today, but not by much. And prices will come down. Remy Gruet is CEO of Ocean Energy Europe. I don't know what price competitive for the consumer means because every single technology that is not renewable is being subsidized in Europe at the moment. Now, are we talking unsubsidized competition? Then we can talk. You want to talk competitivity with gas and coal? Well, it depends. Do you integrate the cost of CO2? Because if you do, again, tidal is going to be cost competitive with these two technologies, including CO2 cost, very, very quickly. And WAVE is roughly about five years, maybe, technologically behind tidal in terms of development. But they will get there as well. And what we also know is that we can't burn coal or gas by 2050 anymore. They need to be off the grid. They need to go. Several dozen energy developers pile into a bus for a drive up to North Holland to see ocean energy devices in action. First stop, the North Sea port of Den Helder. This is the turbine. This is the generator. Fred Gardner is the founder of Symphony Wave Power. His wave energy converter will soon be bobbing up and down in the North Sea. What's the difference between a North Sea wave and an ocean wave? Ocean waves have a very long distance to develop. North Sea waves is just wind waves, and they're much shorter. So why do you prefer to put your, your, your wave converter in the North Sea versus in the ocean? Well, the energy is less, but your device goes up much faster, so you can take with a small device, you can get more energy out. Fred Gardner's device should be harvesting energy from North Sea swells by the end of next year, delivering 25 kilowatts of electricity to the Dutch grid. If all goes well, by 2025, another handful will be bobbing alongside, enough to power about 100 homes proving that the system works. No one will be happier than the oil and gas workers who've helped build Fred Gardner's device. There are lots of them here in the port of Den Helder, building a device that survives North Sea conditions. Generating clean electricity is something they enjoy. Everyone that's working here knows about the project, and they love that they are not just working on oil and gas and fossil fuels, that they work on renewables that increases their motivation to work on these kind of projects. Does it? Yes, yes. You can ask the people. They all love the project. What do they love about it? Well, that you're working on the future, that you're providing us with clean energy. A half-hour drive from Den Helder in the middle of the Afslaut dike, Rick Sieber shows how clean electricity can be generated from water in a completely different way. We take the water from this and from that side, and go to the stacks. Follow me, please. Rick leads visitors to Red Stack's membrane module. This is the heart of the installation. You see here a stack 
with about 500 cell pairs, the energy that we gain, we bring it to the grid, to the public grid. Generating electricity by combining fresh and salt water? It seems odd. Seeing is believing. Any volunteer for making blue energy? Sieber leads us to a small installation, something out of a high school science lab. Two bottles of water, one fresh, one salty, draining into tubes leading to a membrane wired up to a voltage device and a tiny propeller. Rick turns the valves. Everyone holds their breath. It takes a few seconds for voltage to build. The propeller resists a bit, so Rick gives it a gentle poke to everyone's delight you will see that this one will go. <laughs> now, the tiny propeller turns by itself. Quickly, everyone's impressed. Is the right plug I have lied to you. You just made blue energy. Congratulations. <laughs> just a couple of watts of blue energy. Sometime next year, Redstack plans to send 16 kilowatts into the Dutch grid. With financing in place, a 2-megawatt plant will follow its 2030 target, 150 megawatts. That'd be enough to power 750,000 Dutch homes. According to experts, salinity gradient energy could supply 10% of Dutch electricity demand by 2050. The greatest potential is at the mouth of the Rhine and Maas rivers, where vast volumes of fresh water flow into the salty North Sea. Wave and tidal could add another 5% to the ocean energy mix. Much less visible than the Netherlands' famous wind turbines, providing clean, continuous electricity day and night, 24-7. For DW, I'm David Kattenberg in the Netherlands. And before we go, I have another nugget of wisdom to share from environmental data researcher Hannah Ritchie, who we heard from at the beginning. In our conversation, I also asked her what some of the most surprising climate myths were that she's busted with data analysis. A surprising number of people think we're still in a position where emissions in rich countries are rising. So I've seen some surveys asking people that I would assume are like quite highly engaged in climate issues of our emissions in the US going up or down and many people have said they're either going up or staying the same when actually when you look at the data they're very clearly going down and have been for the last few decades. The same is true in the UK. Our emissions in the UK are about half of what they were a few decades ago. So rich countries are reducing their emissions and to some extent quite quickly. They need to go much faster but they are falling. I think there are a lot of myths when it comes to the solutions that we implement. I think one of the biggest areas where I see myths is in the food space. So I do a lot of work on the environmental impacts of food. So one of the key myths there is that I think a lot of people assume that the best way to reduce their carbon footprint of their food is to eat locally. So to only eat local food. And the intuition for that seems plausible and reasonable like we know that transporting stuff emits co2 because we use energy so the further that something has to travel to reach you of course the the co2 emissions will be higher but actually when you step back to look at the data most of the emissions from food come from either land use change and using the land 
or emissions on the farm. So that's stuff like using fertiliser, manure, emissions from cows or, or sheep. And actually only 5% of food's total emissions come from transport. So what that means is that what you're eating matters much more than how it's how far it's travelled to reach you. So the argument there that um, local beef is somehow better than soy that's shipped in from South America is, is just not true when you step back to look at the data. It's what you eat that matters much more than how far it's travelled to reach you. Hmm. Food for thought indeed. You can find more of Dr Hannah Ritchie's work over at Our World in Data. And she also has a new book you can check out called Not the End of the World. Thank you so much to all our listeners for tuning in this year. We really appreciate it. Recently, I've been requesting that listeners follow our survey link to give feedback on the show as we reimagine this format. So for all of you that reached out, I want to thank you very, very much. And if you haven't already, I would love for you to leave Living Planet a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other platform that lets you. Or you could just tell someone about the show next time the environment comes up in conversation. Happy holidays to all that celebrate. I'm Charlie Shields. Living Planet will be back next week with more environment stories from around the world. Music